0: Food is arguably our most essential need. We are born with a reflex to suckle for it, and when our babies cry, our bodies as mothers surge with oxytocin to provide for it. So how is it that something so natural, so critical to our survival, has become so confusing? It shouldn't be. So once a month on the Health Bite podcast, I share with you the food and nutrition headlines in the news, offering you a sensible spin with a practical approach you can trust. Welcome back to Health Bite, my podcast where I offer you small, actionable bites towards healthy weight and weight management through greater mental, emotional, and physical well-being. I wholeheartedly believe that our relationship with food is a window into our relationship with ourselves. Understanding this relationship will not only facilitate healthy weight and weight management, but will have rippling effects that impact every aspect of your life. In the nearly two decades that I've worked as an obesity medicine specialist, I have seen firsthand the life-changing effects of this transformative work, and I'm so excited to share my insights with you. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Udine, and I created this podcast as an alternative to the noise to offer you knowledge-based guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use with my patients in my medical practice every single day to help them achieve healthy weight and health. More episodes are available at dradrienneudine.com podcast. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter and shoot me an email. I'd love to hear about your journey. Okay, here we go. Let's dig in to this week's episode. There is so much talk about weight loss in the new year that I wanted this month's news wrap-up to talk about food as nutrition, food as medicine, irrespective of its impact on our weight. To talk about the recent headlines that focus on how the food we eat can impact our health and well being. We know that diet is a key component to health. And of course, not surprisingly, one study showed that unhealthy diet was the leading cause of death globally. But as we know, there is so much confusion about what to eat. Fortunately, this month, a study came out out of Harvard Public School of Health that showed that one size does not fit all and that variations of a healthy dietary pattern were all protective against disease and death. So what did it look like? Researchers used data from two very large cohorts. The first was the Nurses' Health Study, which includes over 75,000 women. And the second is the health professional study, also a large study that included 45,000 men. So overall, this study included nearly 120,000 men and women that were followed for over 36 years. Researchers compared four different, quote, healthy diets. They included, first, the U.S., style dietary pattern, which emphasized fruits and vegetables, whole grains, low-fat and fat-free dairy, healthy fats, lean meats, and poultry. This diet is based on the types of foods that Americans eat and the proportions that Americans typically eat it. But there were some caveats. The diet limited added sugars and refined starches, and it recommended that people Choose from nutrient-dense options, meaning those that are, again, prepared with minimal processing, minimal added sugars, added starch, and sodium. The guidelines also recommended that beverages that were higher in added sugars, as well as saturated fats, to be reduced. And it also recommended in limiting alcohol. So keep in mind or notice that this is a relative style of eating. There isn't any hard and fast rule, no dogmatic mandates. It is a healthy style of eating. That was compared to a second diet called the healthy vegetarian dietary pattern. These are really sexy names, by the way, but at least they're descriptive for what they are. This dietary pattern was similar to the first, but of course it was vegetarian, so it didn't include meats or poultry or seafood, basically didn't include animal protein. Instead, it contained a higher amount of soy and soy products, such as tofu and other processed soy products. So I know there's a lot of interest in the effect of soy on our health, as well as these newer soy products. So this dietary pattern addressed this. It also included a high amount of plant-based proteins like beans and peas, lentils, as well as good fats like nuts and seeds, as well as whole grains. Keep in mind that none of these dietary interventions, by the way, were low-carb or high protein. So this group also included people who were lacto-ovo vegetarians. So they also consisted of people who consumed dairy and eggs. And like the last group, this diet was low on foods that contained added sugars, refined, refined starches, or sodium. Then there was a third group. The third group was similar, but this one Focused on a healthy Mediterranean style pattern. So, again, similar to the other two, but more based on a Mediterranean style diet, which, again, the Mediterranean diet, we talked about it in last week's podcast. It's focused on the types of foods that are eaten in the countries that surround the Mediterranean Sea. So, staples of the Mediterranean diet include, of course, lots of fruits and veggies lots of whole grains so if you look up the mediterranean diet food pyramid you'll notice that the biggest proportion of food and calories comes from whole grain carbohydrates the mediterranean staples also include seafood nuts legumes and olive oil other animal proteins like poultry as well as dairy including eggs and cheese are also included in this diet, but to lesser amounts. Fish is definitely the main form of animal protein. And they also, in this diet, recommended sweets and red meats and processed meats to be consumed sparingly, as they do in the Mediterranean diets overall. Finally, alcohol was allowed, but limited. For example, four to five ounces of wine, which is the standard serving in the Mediterranean diet. Finally, the last diet was the DASH diet, uh, which stands for Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension, D-A-S-H. This is a diet that was created by the American Heart Association, which focuses on the dietary solution to high blood pressure. As expected, it limits a person's intake of salt or sodium. And again, this uh, particular diet also incorporates high intake of fruits and vegetables. We know by the way that fruits and vegetables have lots of nutrients like magnesium, which in and of itself has been shown or helps to reduce blood pressure, as well as whole grains, fat-free and low-fat dairy products, fish, poultry, beans, nuts, vegetable oils. Again, this diet limited uh excess or excessive sugar, including sugar sweetened beverages, as well as foods high in saturated fat. So you have four dietary patterns. They are all kind of similar, but they have differences. So the the first one, healthy US style dietary pattern focuses on the types and proportions of foods that Americans typically eat, but really, again, encourages Uh, nutrient-dense forms with an emphasis on reducing added sugar, refined starches, and sodium. The second diet is a spin of the first, uh, but it's vegetarian and included lacto-ovo vegetarians, which consumed dairy. The third was similar, but again, based on a more Mediterranean-style pattern. And finally, the last one focused on a DASH or Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension Pattern, which also emphasized limitations on sodium. So they looked at these four types of dietary interventions in almost 120,000 people for almost 40 years and looked at what happened to them. How long did they live? What diseases did they go on to develop? And the study interestingly showed that all four dietary patterns resulted in longer life, a reduction in overall mortality, as well as a reduction in deaths related to cardiovascular disease, cancer, and respiratory disease. So if we think about it, the top two killers in the United States, in men and women, and by the way, we talked about in last week's Health bite episode that was specifically dedicated to cardiovascular disease in women, And I informed you all much to perhaps your surprise that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in women, not breast cancer, like we all worry about, but actually heart disease. But anyway, in this study that showed deaths related to cardiovascular disease, number one killer in men and women, cancer and respiratory disease all were reduced by following one of these dietary patterns. The take-home message is these main points. Number one, they all emphasize a high intake of fruits and veggies. You didn't need a doctor to tell you that fruits and veggies were good. Our moms told us that. But I share the data with you guys because I think we all, all of us, myself included, take for granted the things that we know. And when you hear how impactful these dietary changes can be in your life, making these changes can actually prolong your life and reduce the risk of developing a heart attack, a stroke, or cancer, that's meaningful. So all these diets emphasized, one, a high intake of fruits and vegetables, lean meats, meats for the most part were limited overall, Um, whole grains, so these were not low-carb interventions, legumes and beans, some dairy, and then good fats that came from plant-based sources, less saturated fat, limited to no alcohol, and limited to no sweet beverages or refined sugars, starches, and sodium in general. So these are the basic principles in this diet. And they all showed that whether you follow Mediterranean style diet, a vegetarian style diet that consisted of a, more soy or soy products, a diet that was with or without dairy, that this pattern of eating that consisted of the main principles that I discussed resulted again in a reduction in mortality and a reduction in death from these uh, common diseases in the United States. Hi friends. It's Dr. Adrian, and I'm dropping into your podcast to offer a love letter to you. I believe that our hunger represents our unmet emotional and spiritual needs. And by leaning in and listening to our hunger, we have an opportunity to hear our needs and to respond. I know this not only from personal experience, But from listening to the stories of hundreds, if not thousands, of patients over the past almost 20 years. I have compiled these stories, including my own, into Hungry for More Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. This book is not just about weight loss, but about life and contains lessons that I know to be life changing. If you don't believe me, head over to my website at dradrianudim.com where you can obtain a free sample, or to amazon.com and check out the reviews for yourself. So often we obsess about food and we're misguided despite our best knowing. We're convinced that we should eat in radical ways, pee on a stick, to know that we are in, quote, ketosis. Again, notice that none of these diets were keto in style. We emphasize or force ourselves to eliminate all carbs. So many people think that we should eliminate all dairy. But what this study is saying is that it is not necessary for health. Consume nutrient-dense foods. As I like to say, more from the earth, less from the pantry. More plant-based, but not necessarily vegetarian a good amount of whole grains, legumes, and beans, which are plant-based proteins. And if you're gonna eat animal protein, opt for the lean meats, particularly fish. You do not have to be vegetarian, keto, low-fat, fat-free, or dairy-free in order to achieve these benefits. And finally, to reiterate, limit processed foods. In all of these studies, they limited refined grains, added sugars, sodium, and processed meats. As long as you opt for nutrient-dense foods, you will protect your health. I just love that message. The next study I want to share with you was really interesting for me. And if you are a snorer or sleep with a snorer, this one might be interesting to you as well. So a recent study looked at the link between diet and obstructive sleep apnea. First, some background. Obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA as it's commonly called, is a very common condition that affects one in five people. Basically, it's a condition in which the muscles in the back of the throat relax during sleep, blocking the airway and causing one to stop breathing. These episodes, or apneic episodes, as they are called, can occur multiple times a night. In fact, they can occur multiple times in an hour. And they're associated, not surprisingly, with a drop in their oxygen level or in the blood's oxygen level. So again, the airway is blocked during sleep. And that blockage is going to result in a poor breathing poor air circulation, and therefore a drop in oxygen levels. The symptoms include snoring, gasping, people sometimes will abruptly wake up gasping for air, again, abrupt awakenings. Sometimes though, these awakenings or apneas are never even noticed by the individual. They're enough to disrupt REM sleep, but not enough to arouse the person out of consciousness. So if you are n- not waking up, that doesn't mean that you you don't necessarily have sleep apnea. So how do you know if you have it? Well, first notice if you have the symptoms. Some other symptoms of sleep apnea include morning headaches, dry mouth, daytime fatigue, or waking up feeling unrested despite having slept enough. It's also associated with high blood pressure and tends to occur more commonly in people who are overweight, which is why weight loss is often recommended as well as other treatments like a CPAP machine or even surgery. So this is why this study is particularly so interesting because it showed the diet independent of weight loss, resulted in reduction of symptoms and even resolution, meaning cure of sleep apnea. So we know that weight loss itself is a treatment for sleep apnea, but this is the first study, to my knowledge, that looked at just the type of diet and attributed dietary change in terms of the food that we eat to a reduction in apneas, irrespective of its effect on weight. So what happened here? Participants of the study that was published just last year in JAMA were asked to eat a healthier whole food diet, which included fruits and vegetables, beans, olive oil, seafood, poultry, eggs, and herbs. And they were asked to cut down ultra processed foods, processed foods, processed meats, salty snacks, and sugar sweet beverages. Sound familiar, by the way? Sounds exceedingly similar to the diet that we just talked about. These participants were also encouraged to reduce their alcohol consumption. Here's more data to support going alcohol-free or maybe alcohol-light. See my two podcasts that I recorded in January on this topic. They also encouraged those who smoked to stop smoking. And they were advised to increase their daily step count by 15% per week. So again, these are some loose recommendations for change, dietary change and some lifestyle changes. After just eight weeks, the group that adopted this healthier habit and healthier dietary pattern had a 51% reduction and the number of apneic episodes they experienced during each hour of nightly sleep. That's really mind-boggling, honestly. 51% reduction in the number of apneic episodes per hour. 15% of people in this study achieved complete remission of their sleep apnea, and 45% no longer needed their cumbersome and noisy CPAP machines. Wow, just wow. It's important to note that this diet was not a weight loss diet, but merely by cutting out the bad stuff and incorporating healthy, good stuff, subjects did lose weight, about 16 pounds, as a side effect of these dietary changes. By six months, those who had lost weight kept their weight off, and the number of participants whose sleep apnea resolved doubled. By that time, by six months, nearly 62% no longer required their CPAP machines. But what this study also showed was that individuals who did not have weight loss still experienced improvements in sleep apnea. Why? The leading answer is inflammation. So sleep apnea, like many chronic medical conditions, has been linked to chronically high levels of inflammation. Of course, if you're not sleeping well, if your body is not getting the oxygen that it needs, it is living in a state of stress. And that stress is associated with a state of inflammation. And healthy diet and activity, even if it's a mere 15% increase in your step count, can reduce the amount of inflammatory chemicals that circulate in the blood. So again, these benefits were achieved secondary to diet alone. Now, here's an aside, and I know that we were not going to talk about weight loss in this podcast, but let's notice what happened in this study, because these individuals were offered a healthy alternative to the way that they eat and to the way that they live. They did not focus on quote dieting. They did not focus on calorie reducing. They did not focus on limiting or restricting. They merely focused on more of the good stuff and less of the processed stuff. And as a result, people lost weight. And that is awesome. Finally, participants in this study also had significant reductions in blood pressure, which reduced their risk of dying from a stroke or heart disease by more than 30%, according to the researchers who, who conducted the study. So again, so many incredible benefits when we use food as medicine here is the last story that I want to talk about. And here I want to broaden the topic of food or the topic of nutrition to include the things that nourish us that include food, but are not limited to food. And so I want to share with you some data on friendship, because of course, friendship is nutrition, and we are nourished when we are in deep, meaningful, and connected relationships. Several years ago, data came out, or or a lot of data and talk came out on the loneliness epidemic, and this was before the COVID pandemic. Studies have shown that loneliness had negative effects, of course, on mental health, worsening depression, anxiety, mood disorders, but also linked loneliness to cognitive decline and showed that loneliness was as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes per day in terms of our overall health and even cardiovascular health. Pretty surprising data. Loneliness was so bad that in the UK, where they tend to be a little bit more proactive than we are here in the States, created a ministry of loneliness to combat it. And of course, Everyone's mind went to romantic relationships because, of course, we had found that people who were in committed relationships, romantic relationships, fared much better than those who were romantically alone. But it seems that we'd missed the mark on a new wave of research that is now documenting the benefits of platonic relationships. They are documented in a new book by Professor Marissa Franco, in a book called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. This is a great book, and she shows in it that people with strong relationships, strong friendships, not only have better mental health as is expected, but also physical health as well. In fact, researchers have shown that social connection lowers our risk of premature death more than exercise or dieting alone. In one study of over 700 middle-aged men who were followed for six years, they showed that having a life partner didn't affect the risk of heart attack or fatal coronary heart disease, but having friends did. Amazing. And why? Why? Of course, there are physiologic benefits to friendship that include a positive effect on stress reduction, but imaging studies have also showed that positive friendships affect the systems that are associated with negative emotions and with feelings of reward. Friendship has even been shown to affect our immune response. In one kind of gross study, but nonetheless... Healthy volunteers were given nose drops containing a cold virus, and those with higher social bonds were less likely to develop cold symptoms. Pretty fascinating stuff. So friendship, platonic friendship that is, is food for our soul and good for our health. But I want to address the elephant in the room. As a friend of mine told me at a party last week, Sometimes, I think if I die today, nobody would even notice. <laughs> Dramatic? Maybe. But I can't say that I haven't had the same thought here and there. The truth is that we are lonelier, not only as a the result of the pandemic, but of course, the pandemic didn't make it any better. And to be fair, we tend to dismiss platonic relationships in favor of other things, like caring for our spouses or for our children, but time with our parents, taking care of stuff or working or the many other pressing items that are in our day-to-day lives. We take our friends for granted. We take our friendships for granted, thinking, oh, they will always be there. And perhaps they will. But cultivating friendships requires time, attention, and effort. So here's my health bite for you today. Think of someone in your life, maybe an old friend that you've been disconnected from. If you can't think of anyone in particular, perhaps take a scroll scroll through your phone and see who you've been missing. Start out with a text message. Start out by reaching out and see where it takes you. Or better yet, pick up the phone and call a friend just to let them know that you're thinking of them, or how much you care for them. Just call and say thank you. Consider maybe grabbing a friend to join you for lunch or on something that you were already doing, maybe to go shopping for a gift or to join you for a hike or for a walk. And if you feel isolated, if you feel like you don't have your tribe, find ways to reach new people. Consider a book club a riding circle, a hiking group, a running group. I know it's hard making new friends as an adult, but there are outlets out there and maybe you'll find a new hobby along the way. I hope this episode of Health Byte gave you some food for thought. If you loved it, please head over to the app where you found us and give us a five-star review. So many of you reach out to me via email and tell me how much you love the show. Thank you. And if you share these thoughts in a review, it would really help us spread the word and reach more of you. I hope you have a happy and healthy week, and I look forward to seeing you here again next week on Health Byte.